Well, hi, everyone. This is Roger Horowitz from the Hagley Museum and Library with another episode of the Hagley History Hangout. And these are episodes where we talk to people who have made use of Hagley's collections for research purposes. And sometimes we talk to people who have completed the books on which that research was based. So we're doing that today with Emanuela Scarpellini, uh, who is a frequent visitor to Hagley. Emanuela, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Emanuela uh, is professor of history at University of Milan, which as you probably know is in Italy. She's written an armful of books uh, in Italian about Italian history, Italian business history, Italian cultural history. Uh, the book that I'm gonna talk about with her today is called Italian Fashion since 1945. This is the cover here, uh, A Cultural History. It's the third book that has been translated into English uh, for her. So she's also becoming well out there in, in the English language. She's published articles as well as Enterprise and Society and some other journals in English. But, but I, I say this to emphasize that what we see of her work in English is only a fraction of the scholarship which she has been engaged in for her long, illustrious uh, career uh, in, in Italian history. Um, I'll also admit that Emanuela has become a frequent visitor to the Hagley Library to research in our collections, which has always been uh, terrific to get to know her. So, so that's what we're talking about today. We're talking with her. We're talking about Italian fashion since 1945. So let me start by asking you to tell us why you wrote this book how, and how is it connected in a larger sense to the kind of scholarship that you're interested in. Okay, thank you. Thank you, uh, first of all, for your, this kind introduction. And I'm very happy and very pleased to, to be here because I think I consider myself a friend of Hagley. And Hagley was really important to many of my research, starting also with this research. So to answer to your question, well, I've been fascinated by the material culture linked to consumption because in six years, because I think that here we can find many key aspects uh, of our society. For instance, think about the boundaries and the marks of class, gender, uh, race, generation, if you like, also local differentiation, also the many reflection in the world of art and literature, the many uh, meaning related to the production processes, the economic processes, I mean, the links to commercial world. If not, uh, we can also talk about the governmental uh, policies. Anyway, it's a sort of cultural construction that allows us to observe the evolution of the country, in my case of Italy. And also, um, I was also struck by the, the, the idea that you can challenge the idea of globalization as a sort of homogeneous global culture of consumption spreading everywhere. Because in this way, thanks to this kind of research, you can see how local culture, not, all, not necessarily national culture, but even really local culture could oppose this sort of homogeneous construction. So therefore, I think I started, let's say 20 years ago to study specifically consumption and more than that, the consumer. So not a sort of strange abstract figure, but as a historical individual. 
So my first interest uh, started uh, with uh, the appearance at the beginning of the first supermarkets in Italy. Uh, brought by an American enterprise. And I published an article on Enterprise Society. I think it was 2004, something like that. And then I published a major work translated into English called Material Nation. And that was a sort of uh, history from the point of view of the consumer, a sort of bottom-up history of Italy, modern Italy, so mid 19th century to present day. And then I decided to go in depth to some specific elements. Food, for instance, because we all know that food is such an important element in the uh, Italian culture. So, and that was another book. And now here, of course, fashion, because I think that fashion is another characteristic of the sort of of the idea that we have about the uh, consumer culture in Italy. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for the for the for the for the big picture. Now, let's focus in a bit about fashion. Um, one of the things you do in your book is you explain why it matters to so many people and has for so much so much so much time. So, and, and in a way, you have a theory of fashion and clothing that you deploy and helps to guide the way you study the subject. Can you tell us what that is? Can you tell us what your view is of the role of fashion, why it matters to people, why it's so significant in our society? Yes, I think that when we think about clothes and in general fashion, uh, the first idea is about the garments, fine garments that we see in the shop windows, maybe the models, top models uh, we see on television or in the social media and the many, I don't know, catwalks with shapes and colors changing from one season to another. So this is basically the, the first idea. Because I think there was an effectiveness of the media communication that in some way was able to submerge almost all the other meanings. I have also my personal experience because especially uh, at the beginning of my research, when I was going around uh, asking for interviews, uh, looking for archives and so on. So people uh, asked me what was I doing? And I was, um, I told them that I'm researching about the history of fashion, so and so. And so they said, well, that's wonderful. So you probably met a lot of wonderful models and these super famous uh, designers. And maybe you have been invited to this endless fascinating parties, uh, uh, beautiful shops and so on. And no, <laughs> sorry to say that was not the case. <laughs> well, I met some of these people, but very briefly. And in many cases, they were not really the most interesting and intriguing interviews in my case. My idea of fashion is quite different. And maybe it would be better to talk about clothing because fashion is such a, a sort of glamorous, evocative word. When we think about clothing, we have to think of the, uh, about the many uh, meaning that we are also using and assuming when we dress or, or we look at uh, to another people dress in a certain way and giving us many different messages. Think about the social status, for instance, about the, the 
um, preciousness of the garment, the cultural choices, of course, the gender. We still, in many cases, dress different according to genders in many cultures. And age, there is still a, 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 a strong differences according to age. But also, uh, we can find messages about the political uh, um, preferences, musical preferences. Well, I was uh, looking at the um, recently of footage and shots about the, well, we all know about the Black Lives Matter movement. Think about the many uh, t-shirts or caps or I don't know, other uh, um, part of the uh, our garments with this kind of slogan. So the, the importance and the effectiveness of this message on us it's not just a label, it's, you know, word by real people. So uh, in this sense, it is very clear that there is a very strong cultural meaning um, related to the way we dress. Sometimes it's not easy to understand the, uh, this uh, message in our complicated uh, societies, but it's always there. So it's, uh, it's a message really tied to the codes which are typical, historically typical of a community. And in the same, same time, I think this, this sort of daily objects are also object of material culture. That is to say, it's true that they have a lot of cultural meaning, what we said, but this, at the same time, they have a, um, a physicality. So, and so they have to be made, to be produced, and to be also used. So I think that in this way, uh, using this uh, both symbolic and physical uh, aspect, they really can tell us a lot about our society, our values, and our symbols. Very good, uh, which of course leads me to the way you've done this and how you've explored this uh, in this book. Mm -hmm. Um, and what, what struck me, especially as I, as I read the book, is that you have a subtitle, a cultural history, that implies, I think, the kind of reception that you describe, that you, you talk to designers and fashion models and went to some wonderful parties. And, you know, when you open the book, you're going to see you know, pictures of beautiful people wearing beautiful things. But the book does not just do that. I mean, the cultural history that you have has many elements in it that would surprise people who think this is going to be a cultural history, a story of the way things look. Can you explain the method? In a way, this is the method that elaborates on what you just said, that, the, that these are both symbols and also material creations. What's your method as you proceed through the book, um, as you move from the 1930s pretty much up to the, to, to the present? Yes, um, that's an interesting and key question in my research because, as of course, we, we just talk about the cultural and symbolic values attached to, to the to clothing in general fashion, but technical and economic aspects are as important uh, as the, the symbolic ones. So, in fact, we we all know that garments, for instance, vary in accordance also with the type of it economic organization which produced them. And this is very clear in the case of Italy. Anyway, to go to your question, um, I tried to combine a cultural history approach 
with a, an economic business history approach. For instance, using, uh, first of all, this kind of cultural understanding of the value and the um, direct and indirect meaning of the, of the garments with, for instance, statistical data, sources coming from materials from public archives, private company archives, and so on. So to put together how to say the hard facts with their cultural interpretation. For instance, just to give you some example, um, one important thing that sometimes I think is uh, uh, we don't think about, uh, also that was my opinion. When I think about clothes, I don't think, for instance, about technology. So usually when uh, I think about technology, I think about, I don't know, cars or technical objects uh, and other things. And looking at the, the specific object, even an historical object, it's very clear that there was a great technical improvements over time and so on. But the real thing is that the same thing applies to apparel. For instance, if I go and look, I had many experience in looking into I mean, uh, museums and um, material archives. So all clothes, say grandfather's, great grandfather's clothes or something like that, they usually were made only by natural fibers. Of course, we praise very much now the natural so organic fibers, but the, the real thing is that they had many limitations in a sense. For instance, they usually think about wool. They, may, they were usually heavier and more rigid than our uh, typical wool. In many cases, lack of elasticity. They could not be dyed with the many colors we like today. And even they tended to fade through use or washing. And not talking about the fact that we're not waterproof, stain resistance, and many other things. So um, in a sense, they cannot really be compared to today's clothes. In a sense, uh, um, and this is only about the fibers, we could say something similar about the, the manufacturing process because there were many innovative uh, manufacturing methods Think about um, printing, printing on the fibers, or the many finishing processes, which would have been unimaginable in the past. So I would say that in short, the uh, our present-day clothes are, we can say, technological objects. And in this case, we need to pay attention not only to the cultural medium, but also to the real and practical economic and technological aspects. Well, that's, that's, a, that's one piece of your broadening. The other uh, is your use of you know, economic data, um, which I noticed that in lots of places you would have stories, uh, examples, and then you would have data. Can you give us an example of how you combine this, the kind of I mean, I would call this data sort of hard economic history. You know, this is what, you know, people do all the time in economic history is they find lots of numbers, they do things with them, but usually they don't have the stories. They don't have the other kinds of examples in there. Can you, can you just pick out, say, a favorite example to tell us how you combined these elements? 
Yes, for instance, uh, well, the idea is to combine also macro history with the general frame. So in many cases, I start uh, using, for instance, say a story or, or interview or some, I mean, personal uh, real story. For instance, looking at the specific dress using uh, certain moments. And then I try to uh, also to analyze the components uh, of this dress, which was particularly important for this sense in a specific ceremonies, I don't know, marriage. So that cloth was important and had a specific a symbolic meaning for the, that particular person and family. So that was part of, uh, of the memory of the family. It was an important part of the history. At the same time, starting from this particular address, I tried to understand where it was produced, the fabric, the manufacturing, sometimes the raw materials behind the dress. And in this way, I moved to a sort of macro or upper level, uh, trying to understand the flaws, the many processes uh, used to, to arrive to this final uh, product. And also in statistical data, something unique, something very special, that was very common. Uh, in this case, I was able also to understand something that was not clear to the, to the person uh, in the memory, because we attach, of course, emotional, um, emotional meaning to, especially to clothes that we were attached to our body. But there are, of course, economic and technological aspects. So in many cases, it is important to understand the general, uh, the general data and the general frame in which there was the possibility, the concrete possibility for that particular ind ind individual or person to get that dress. So I'm trying to go uh, from the specific history, even emotional, uh, and we were, in many cases, there are very, very nice, uh, even moving stories about the dress to the general data, to understand what's behind really the, the material artifact. Okay, well, let me ask you more about those, those stories. Um, you have a, a method in your chapters where you usually open up with a vignette from a movie uh, and you, you make the, the reader wait to know the name of the movie. You describe the scene and we're all wondering what movie this could be that you're describing. And then you let us know who the reader is, who the movie is and who the famous actors are there. And then you, and you don't stop there. You have that story and then you say, but let's look at how ordinary people dressed. Let's look at some other stories. Um, tell us how you reconstruct these ordinary stories, not the famous stories, uh, the, the you know, people who are on screen, Richard Gere makes an appearance at one point in, in your story in, in American Gigolo, but how do you get at this very difficult thing of the way people are dressing at certain times and how that's changing over time? How do you convey that to the reader? Well, this is a, another uh, very important point because when I started to read the old, uh, I don't know if all the books, but really many, many books about the history of fashion, uh, studies, articles, even textbooks, what I found out is that they usually use um, as a source, uh, for instance, imaging, images in magazine, 
sometimes also films, advertising, a lot of advertising and so. And of course, these are copious and easy to find sources. But the, my point was, are they taking into account really the problem of the ordinary people or are they um, fictional representation of reality? Anyway, filtered by media, by the by the magazine, by the so movie um, and the actors, uh, the writers, so and so. On. So uh, to try to uh, understand the different perspective, so I decided to start with a sort of artistic representation, in this case, usually uh, movies, and then move to other sources. Basically, I use oral history interviews and a sort of novelty. It's not really a novelty, of course, but <laughs> to many studies could be so something uh, not that common. Uh, for instance, the private photographs, uh, the thousand and thousands of images which family have taken and usually are, I don't know, in some drawers, but uh, now, um, with the, it's very, it's easier to find them. So uh, the idea was to start with an artistic media representation, maybe of an iconic moment of the period, and then uh, move to another plan, the personal family memories, so that the two sources could interact somewhat. As for the oral history, as I said, there were not a lot of problems. We now have a long tradition, many useful archives. So I know that also Agli has a very interesting and evolving archives about that. I did myself many interviews and also I um, directed a small group of professional researchers working for me in different parts of Italy. And as for the private picture, it was, uh, difficult at the beginning, but then I found out that on the internet, uh, they are all around us. And there's a, a really a lot of this kind of products, uh, memories, pictures, familiar memories uh, available online. Well, one could say that in a sense, they, they also as um, a sort of representation somewhat because they also follow the cultural and artistic canons and ideas all, all the time. But I think that they have a, a, a big advantage because any, in any way they are a self-representation. So a representation coming from the bottom and they, so they are not descended from the top and these images are chosen and the, and the location and the people are chosen directly, realized directly by the consumer themselves. Sometimes they have also technical limitation, but this, this is not important. In a way, this is um, the voice, the image they would like and they accept to present of themselves. This is why I think they are very valuable. Uh, so, and together with the oral interviews, they can help us to reconstruct uh, the society from a different per perspective, the perspective of the protagonists, so to speak. Well, it's very effective. And, and just, to, just to you know reveal this for, for people, the way 
Emmanuel conveys this is that we look into their closets. Uh, it's a wonderful device where she says, what's, what's in these closets? What are they wearing? And that is a way of unpacking, if you will, ordinary wardrobes or the wardrobes of men and women through this period. It, it's a, you know, reconstructed through the, through the, through that story. It's, it's very effective. Um, but I'm adding that. I want, time, <laughs> so, so, sorry, Manuela. Uh, that was very fun, by the way, asking people about their closet or their mom's closet or what was in there. <laughs> and it, it changes over time. But I, I'm, I'm, I want to move a little bit because I'm sure people who are listening want to know, okay, great methods. What does she say? You know, what's, what's the argument there? And of course, the, the big thing your book is about is the rise of the Italian designers and the Italian fashion industry, um, especially after... Uh, 1960. Uh, there's a lot of setup to that, but that's the big, big story. So can you describe in a nutshell what happens? W how do you explain that this, you know, relatively sort of medium-sized country, um, admittedly with a tremendously long and wonderful, interesting history, becomes so influential in this world of fashion, you know, when you have France and England and the United States and a lot of places that, you know, could plausibly have done it as well, but Italy stands out, you know, in the story and it's not. And so this is, you know, of course your work is focused on Italy, but this is not just about Italy. This is the rise of a set of designers and, and clothing that if you will, dominates fashion generally after 1960. So how does it happen? I mean, I know that the, you have to read the book to fully understand this, but can you pick out some high points to explain to people how it is that this takes place? Yeah, this is uh, a, a turning point, of course, in the history of fashion, particularly in Italy, but not uh, only in Italy, as you said. Because uh, let's start from the beginning um, very briefly. In Italy, there was a, a very long tradition in textile production. For instance, think about silk, for instance. And there was the widespread uh, uh, artisanal um, uh, coming, I, I would say, even in the still very common and very present in the 1950s and 70s, 60s and 70s, why in other countries um, they had almost disappeared because of the, you know, the industrialization and the mass production. The problem of Italy was the problem of, the, of marketing and the sort of general image of the Italian fashion. The fashion with the, the serious fashion was for women in Paris, that's it. Or for men, uh, there was the traditional from London or for sport and casual coming from the US, um, maybe the California and other things. But what happened? I think that here we should concentrate on the 1960s in particularly, starting with the, the many changes in society. Think about the youth revolution, obviously. This cultural revolutions um, became had a, some, a sort of another uh, consequences. Uh, youth became a sort of important autonomous and even, uh, even visible segment in society. And also they claim their own garments and their own fashion. In the same time, we have to consider the change, the many changes in the role of women. In this period, we have a, a, 
in Italy, but not, not only in Italy, a massive entry of women into the world of work, also due to the increase in schooling. So these categories, which were considered, I wouldn't say not, uh, somewhat marginal, uh, with respect with uh, the, the typical, uh, you know, working uh, male class, uh, they were experiencing a very uh, rapid social economic rise, and also wishes wish to reflect their success in their appearance and how uh, they uh, they could do they could not do this uh, with the existing low quality mass production but in the same time it was impossible to uh, look at the super elite elitist uh, super expensive high fashion coming from paris or from london so I think that, so they, they were asking for quality, but uh, at the reasonable prices. And there was nothing like this in the fashion world, in the fashion industry at that time. So I think that here comes the innovative proposal by the Italian designers, because they imagine a sort of production halfway between the, the high fashion, so style, innovation, quality, etc and the ready-made production, which uh, uh, was based on industrial process, which could guarantee uh, relatively affordable prices. Let's say maybe, uh, I don't know, five, six times the basic prices, but with another meaning, with another attention to style, to do the fabrics, coming from Italy. So it was a sort of new configuration of the fashion industry. I would like to give you an example to be clear. Uh, one of the most important and famous designer is of course, Giorgio Armani. So Giorgio Armani uh, had not started working at a department store in Milan, the Larnacente, preparing the windows. So he was not interested in the uh, single item in the garment, but he became an expert of style, of trends, of what the new, this new public, uh, working women and, and we said youth and others, or you know, this new creative um, people that look, were looking, when talking about fashion and accessories. So he started to draw and his idea and to make suggestion to some um, brands already existing before starting on his own in 1975. Uh, we all know about his style. It was very soft, natural, neutral colors, and also new ideas about the man with uh, a less uh, male, uh, I mean, something more, uh, relaxed, uh, uh, relaxed shape and idea of man. And also uh, he tried to use the same jacket and dress for women, for the working women. Uh, well, the problem for Armani was that, well, it was a good idea, many style, everything, but he liked capitals. He was not an entrepreneur, not a rich person. So he proposed his collection, uh, basically his drawing to some already existing industrial producers, in particular, one big in Turin, uh, GFT, but, but other smaller um, businesses around Italy. 
using a licensing agreement. So the idea is, was that it would, of course, design and um, follow the, um, the direction and control and check all the uh, production uh, process um, because ev everything should follow his idea. Uh, but the entrepreneurs would uh, put the capital and then the know-how and the and the even the, the machines to produce the garments and they would sell the goods paying royalties to Amani. In this way, uh, people like uh, this uh, young, talented person with many ideas but no capitals were able to enter into the market. So the idea in this case was combine the style and the quality with an industrial production and to create a new idea of the ready-to-wear, something of good quality, but something affordable to many people and especially to the new public, the new segments of society coming from the, uh, after the 1968. Um, that's great. Let me ask a pointed question. Uh, you're talking about the influence of youth culture on fashion. And in the book, you describe how this is at odds with other kinds of notions of cultural diffusion, of how ideas about what culture spreads. What's your argument here in terms of the larger picture? What does this say about how fashion spreads or ideas about culture spread to focus, if you, as you will, on this, if you will, a generational population? Yes, uh, you know that, um, especially uh, following this, uh, the youth revolution and all these changes, from a theoretical point of view, there was the idea that the fashion would spread uh, top down, basically. There was this um, old theory of the so-called trickle down effect. So uh, the which um, trendy, the elite would use a, a sort of fashion, a color, whatever, and all the others in the, in the society, they would uh, uh, try to, to do the same thing. But of course, uh, exactly the, the experience of the youth revolution in the 1960s showed that that was not true, or at least it was not true completely anymore because there, was, there were other possible currents. For instance, the possibility of a sort of horizontal uh, diffusion, uh, a, a propagation as a sort of collective choice, moving from one social group to another group, but at any level, not necessarily top down. And even that was something very intriguing and something very new. These new subcultural styles, um, uh, for instance, the, you know, miniskirts uh, and the, the blue jeans and that t-shirt uh, arising in, in, this, in this way in the lower social strata or coming from marginalized groups can successfully influence the whole of society. So there was the idea of the trickle-up So another sort of idea of how social and cultural um, trends or culture can move inside and around society. 
And of course, this influenced the producer because the producer, of course, from a practical point of view, they were very quick to respond to this new demand. In, in particular, in the Italian case, uh, for instance, they, they were very impressed by the spreading of the, the blue jeans, the American blue jeans. So something started with a sort of working um, apparel and then moving to uh, symbolize the youth revolution. But in many cases, the Italian producers started their own Italian brands. And what they did is to change a little build the traditional model. We know we all know that we have um, five pockets and then uh, a denim, a kind of denim, usually blue, a straight cut and so on. But in this case, the Italian producer made sort of the interpretation of that. For instance, different cuts, narrow, wide, bell bottoms or whatever, and also produced specifically for women which was not at the beginning. And with all those pockets, also other fabrics and so on. In this case, the fashion became also a sort of fashion, uh, the, the jeans became the fashion item. So they moved from the easy casual items to the realm of fashion. And the same was true, not only for blue jeans, but also think about sweater, uh, t-shirts, sport jacket and so on. Well, let's stay on this point for a minute. I mean, you said earlier the Italian, you know, manufacturers saw this and reacted quickly. And that's exactly the question. In other words, here you have a phenomenon, worldwide youth phenomenon. And it seems to be the Italian designers who see this and are able to grab onto it. You know, one possible explanation is you simply had people like Armani all over Italy. They just were better at that. But you also suggest there's something about the way the Italian clothing industry was organized, which facilitated a response to this cultural element there. And that's the element which usually isn't talked about. So talk to me about that. You, you, we're in a certain period, we're in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. How is it, the, the, if you will, what you don't see, the manufacturing and the organization of production facilitating the response of the Italian designers to this new cultural phenomenon. Yeah, this is a very interesting point because I think that this is also a key to understand the characteristic of the Italian production. Uh, because still in the 1960s and on, in Italy, together with some uh, big uh, factory, there, there was also a, a myriad of small and micro businesses. So usually gathered around specific locations. They were the, the famous, the so-called industrial district. And it's interesting because more or less in that period, 60s and 70s, uh, due to the deindustrialization, that they were almost appearing these micro businesses in many countries, starting first from France as an image, but France starting from the 1970s uh, was starting to lose a lot of industrial producer in textile and uh, garment industry. So in these cases, what, uh, what was the point that uh, as we said for the case of Armani, this, uh, uh, this creation with constellation of small um, 
and in many cases, long established art, a different kind of production. In many cases, a production that was more flexible and therefore more apt to the new demands of this innovative and ever-changing uh, fashion markets. And think about, for instance, uh, talking about the district, the, the where in many cases they were um, uh, there for, I don't know, things, uh, centuries. Think, uh, if I think about the regeneration of bull um, rags in, in, in Tuscany or uh, the hats, the industry of hats in Florence, or the silk in Como in northern part of Milano. In many cases, they were already there, of course, but nobody had paid much attention to them. They were considered sort of pre-modern leftover of the, of the industry. The perfect model was the large managerial innovative factor. With the 1970s, the, even the crisis uh, strengthened the, the district because in a sense, the, the, as we said, the flexibility, the possibility also to compete thanks to a low labor cost with the growing competition coming from the less developed countries, the uh, family production with uh, in a sort of protected environment, uh, thanks to many links. Uh, the relation with kings and friends, maybe doing exactly the same labors, the physical proximity, all, all these things became a sort of competitive advantage. A competitive advantage that really, I think, was very supportive to the development of the, this new ready-to-wear Italian fashion. So for those listening, put this together with licensing and you put together industry that can respond to these kinds of designs. And I, I think that's kind of the core uh, explanation. Now, I, I would, I have to ask you uh, what you found at Hagley. Because after all, you, I've, I've not a big deal about how you connect to Hagley. And, yeah. and, and, and what did you find here that contributed? Uh, to, and I should say that, that, uh, that the vast bulk of Emanuele's research was, was, is in Italy. Uh, obviously, you know, this, that's there and it, it's, you know, the interviews, the data and all that. But she did find some things at Hagley that were useful. So why don't you share that with us? Yeah, this is a, this is very, I was also very surprised, but I started with one point. Well, if you uh, read almost any book about the Italian fashion, that would say that aesthetics is particularly important, it's key. Because for instance, the, the way luxurious and big American department stores buying the new Italian fashion. So the relationship was considered key, um, especially looking at uh, the United States as a, as a market, as a, a very important market. But what I found out is that the relationship was bilateral, definitely. It's true that the US companies, uh, the department store bought a lot of Italian fashion and it was an important market. But at the same time, the Italian producer and the designer were absolutely interested in the innovative aspects of uh, the producing system coming from US. 
starting from the 1950s, they started to import also the machinery and uh, to uh, for cutting, for producing. But more, more than that, they were interested, the Italian producers were interested in the modern and the new fibers, the new synthetic fibers. Of course, they, and we all know that the main producer of the new synthetic fibers uh, were US, uh, American, starting from, of course, the DuPont. DuPont, the, of course, the creator of nylon and many other uh, fibers. And, and here, the point is that, that at the beginning, if we think about the, even the history of nylon, the problem was that when the new fibers were considered at the very beginning, uh, were useful, comfortable, uh, I don't know, durable, waterproof, whatever, but less prized than the natural fibers. There was a sort of hierarchy. Natural fiber, because they are more important, the more traditional, more everything, and the others, very functional, but something a little bit lower. So uh, in, for this reason, many of these uh, um, new fibers were used for mid-low priced clothing. So there was the uh, need to achieve a sort of leaping quality, a new image of these new synthetic fibers. And uh, I found that in there were some studies and particularly by Regina Blasit has documented the French fashion organization, the French designer, and signing an agreement and tried to spread the use of synthetic fibers DuPont synthetic fibers, of course, uh, in their models. And that was particularly effective and useful in, in, with some designers as uh, Christian Dior or even Coco Chanel, but De Givenchy and others. So I tried to find out what was the possible relationship between the DuPont and Italian designers. And what I found out, which is I think uh, almost unknown until now, is that a similar agreement was reached with Italian designers. So I found in the DuPont archives and particularly in the, I tell you, the DuPont textile product information collection, I have to be precise about that, a lot of um, documentation showing that uh, there was this sort of bilateral um, important agreement. So the idea was that starting from 1961, um, the, the DuPont um, starting to photograph Italian models, the collections uh, that use the US uh, DuPont fibers. And so they, they prepare a collection of photo, uh, photographs with a brief descriptive text, for instance, uh, we have to remember that the DuPont information service uh, was headquartered in uh, Geneva and uh, it was responsible for the European um, affairs. So uh, they started, for instance, I remember a, a Pucci collection, a lot of pictures by a famous women, a woman photographer, uh, Elsa Hefner. Uh, with a lot of picture and uh, together with the picture, a, a, a short description in four languages. 
so in English, of course, Italian, but also French and German, because after uh, they well, um, there were also the uh, notes that this, um, of course, uh, were made by, let's say, uh, I don't know, the Orlon, the soft Orlon produced by Dupont, or the, and then these photographs were given exclusively to certain newspaper in Miami, uh, Baltimore and Chicago. And they others were sent for free to many European magazines. In a way, there was a sort of glo global or advertising for in favor of the new Italian designers using Dupont fibers. And it's very interesting because this happened, let's say 10 years after the French experience. So the agreement with the French designer was uh, of the beginning of the 1950s, the, the same more or less same agreement with the Italians at the beginning of the 1960s. And the reason why they were particularly interested in the Italian um, designers was that um, it was not only, I mean, uh, uh, an opportunity for advertising, but the, there was also a, a match because the Italian designers were particularly keen to, as we said, the sport and casual uh, wear attire and also the knitwear. And so they were particularly in demand of that kind of fibers that were produced by DuPont. So they were not really uh, pointing at formal uh, attire as many cases the French did, but they were really developing the casual wear, the knitwear, and your lawn, the nylon were absolutely key to this kind of production. So I think that it was a very a useful a sort of functional bilateral agreement that help uh, the, I think they also the, the image of the synthetic fibers. It all more or less stop at the beginning of the seventies from one side. It also helped and it was a sort of free uh, an important advertising and marketing from the Italian designer, designer uh, worldwide. So it was very interesting this point because it was also a way to shed lights on the many flows uh, that are at the base, sometimes hidden, but they are at the base of the nature of the uh, contemporary fashion. Well, it's a great story and, and it's great to have that, that stuff unearthed uh, and brought to light, but it, it makes me think of another question. I mean, I mean, DuPont is not the only you know, company making synthetic fibers. Um, and these synthetic fibers become more established. In your judgment, this is a, a question of your judgment, how important were the synthetic fibers to the imagination of the Italian designers? You know, imagining, as we said before, clothing that was softer, image of the body, uh, operated in different ways, could be made for women. Uh, in a sense, I'm asking you, to what extent does the possibilities generated by synthetics affect the actual ideas or influence the ideas of the people designing the clothes? Well, I think that's uh, very interesting. I think that um, we can say this way, uh, we are moving from a, a fashion, a general idea of fashion, which is a little bit uh, formal, uh, rigid, 
you think about the typical business suit of uh, of the working traditional man is very i mean has a very rigid shape it's a in a sense it's like a uniform in some way so and we are moving from this kind of shape and this kind of fashion towards something more casual more free more comfortable uh, t-shirts, sweater, uh, blue jeans, we said something like that. In this movement, the fibers are particularly important because uh, as we said, in many cases, the traditional fibers could be rigid, could be uh, not that flexible uh, and useful uh, as the uh, fibers that we need for this casual clothing. We have also to remember that casual clothing is uh, also used now for everyday life in our urban society, but also it was used for, I don't know, uh, under the water. So it was important that it could be uh, water resistance, uh, resistant to straps, to stains, to many other things. And these particular uh, qualities are, um, can, they, they really come from the new synthetic fibers. We all know that if we wear something, I don't know, in 100% uh, 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 wool, for instance, if you're not talking about silk, they are very delicate. And you, while we are now, um, we usually wear something more, I mean, in a very practical and informal way. So we really, I think that there is also a move toward a different kind of wearing things. And, uh, and in, this, uh, in this respect, the presence and the importance of these new synthetic fibers really played a big role. Also for the diffusion and the movement from this uh, kind of fashion, which was confined to the to the sport world movement uh, to the urban setting and i think when we go around in a very sport way at least for our i don't know grandfather they are too sportive i mean sneakers uh, jeans uh, t-shirt jacket nothing really to do with a very elegant business suit <laughs> but this is our society and uh, for this kind of fashion the synthetic and new fiber the, the new methods of producing and printing is particularly important well again you you bring us back to the connection between style and and image and the material properties uh, of the fabric um, let me bring this to a close by asking you about, to, to bring us up, up closer to the present. I mean, obviously, the world of the internet has upended many things. Um, you do kind of get into this towards the, towards the end of your book, and it's been a few years since. What are your, what are your assessments, if you will, looking, looking at now and looking at the near future uh, about Italian fashion and how, it's, how is it doing in this world and how do you think it will do? Well, um, if we talk about the present, of course, uh, well, the, the present situation had a very um, terrible, it generated a major crisis that we all know in the fashion industry in general, 
in the Italian fashion industry and in general, because of the many lockdowns, restrictions. Of course, fashion is a social part, as we said. So if we stay at home, only at home, of course, uh, this is a negative aspect <laughs> for fashion. Now, it's true, and now, only now sales are very, very slowly uh, coming back. But what we can say, well, the, the presence of internet and the connection is, of course, part of the Italian and in general of the fashion world in years now. And we also have direct uh, sales by the producer, by the brand state, and also um, many often by these big e-retailers, uh, Amazon, Alibaba, Hughes, Marquerisa, many others. And also we know the importance, talking about the internet of the, for instance, the fashion influencer on the web, especially on Instagram. And we know the, the importance of the many websites and blogs on fashion. So I think that that world was already there, but with the pandemic is more and more important. My impression is that um, talking about also the Italian fashion consumers, at least would be more aware, they would be even choosier, will expect more from the garments, uh, will be absolutely more careful about sustainability. That is a very key point. But also about the true quality of the garment they are buying, maybe uh, through the internet. And especially about the, uh, the relationship, uh, the quality price relationship. So I think that in general, even after the recovery, fashion, the fashion world will change somewhat. And so, and the Italian designers, of course, uh, they would, they had to adapt to the, to the new needs, sustainability, or also this attention to the new quality and also the ethical problems that we know uh, are very common for many um, brands. At the same time, I think that the need and the the interest by the consumer for uh, creativity and innovation in fashion will stay. And now Italian fashion is part of the fashion industry together with the, as we talk about France, we talk about uh, UK and United States, but we have also many other uh, countries and capitals in the, in the in Southern part of, uh, of the world, in Africa, and then in Japan and many other uh, points. And in this new creative industry, uh, which are uh, together with art, I don't know, entertainment, media, and also the, together with the new technology, they can help us to uh, combine the economic growth and the quality of life. And this in a more flexible interconnected world. So this is my hope, at least for the future, uh, a, a future that hopefully had learned from the hard lesson we are still experiencing. Okay, thank you very much for all that. Uh, that's a wonderful survey of the book, your methods, your argument, and a look to the future. Uh, here we have it, Italian fashion since 1945, a cultural history. Uh, available via Amazon, 
and other other uh, sources like that. And um, you will hear more from Manuela. Uh, this is not she has she has more work to do. And we probably have more stuff at Hagley for you. So so thank you very much, Manuela. Appreciate you being with us to talk about your work. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.